obedience. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so if you remember, uh, Numbers 14 is the chapter of um, Israel's failure to go into the promised land. Okay, so they, they get up to the, the borders, they hear the report of the spies, and they decide not to go in. Uh, obviously, this is a familiar story. I don't need to go through all that with that to you. But we do need to emphasize that Moses intercedes for the people in chapter 14. And his intercession actually brings about pardon. Uh, and so we looked last week about the, the tension, although not a, not a conflicting tension, but just a real tension between God saying, I pardon you but you're not going into the promised land. That's a real tension that we have. Um, and, and with Moses' intercession. Now, uh, today, we're dealing with life goes on even though there's no hope of the promised land for the first generation. Life goes on even though there's no hope of the promised land for the first generation. And, and I have in my notes, life and doctrine go together. Life and doctrine go together. Um, doctrine enables you to interpret life correctly. Without doctrine you will inevitably interpret your life wrongly. Doctrine helps you to see yourself, see God, see the gospel, see these things correctly for what they are. So a lot of times we don't, I mean, you guys, you're Presbyterian, so you do like doctrine. Most of the Christian world doesn't like doctrine that much, but, um, but really we do need doctrine. And what we have in chapter 15 is really boiled down to it. It's not going to be hard if you've already read it. You think, what's this all doing here? But really, it is doctrine coming after life situation. So chapter 14 was this big life situation, failure to obey, grumbling, complaining, and then chapter 15 is going to be laws about sacrifices. And you're going to be like, why do we have to keep going back to this? It's like we're going back to Leviticus again. Um, But remember that these laws of the sacrifices help us to interpret your life situation correctly, okay? Uh, Also, we always need to keep in mind that the sacrificial and ceremonial system was provided by God to help his people understand covenant truth. Okay, it's there to, uh, to help them understand God's covenant as they're going through life. Numbers 15 interrupts. If, if, if you have Numbers 14's rebellion, you can expect number 16 to be rebellion, and in the middle you have chapter 15, and it's all about sacrifices. So that, that's, it kind of interrupts the flow. Uh, and it is given, because we know that there's, Rebellion before, rebellion after. It's chapter 15 is there to help us make the right conclusions about that rebellion. Okay? Some of the broad lessons I'll give you here at the beginning. Some of the broad lessons of this chapter. Number one, hope remains. There's actually a place that we did uh, a summer mission project in South Carolina, a little camp called Hope Remains. And uh, so even though, even though God has said you will not go into the promised land, one of the lessons of chapter 15 is that hope remains. One of the Second lessons of this is that loyalty is necessary. And you could put covenant in front of these. 
Covenant hope remains. Covenant loyalty is necessary. Um, And then third, how do I say it? Fellowship is foundational. Covenant hope remains. Covenant loyalty is necessary. Covenant fellowship is foundational. Uh, Some of the purposes of these sacrifices are, are to help us understand atonement, to understand tribute to our heavenly king, and to understand table fellowship. So I'm gaining some of this from a a commentator named Ian Duguid, uh, which was very helpful. Um, There's there's atonement for sin in the sacrifices. There's tribute to the heavenly king in the offerings. And there's table fellowship going on. And those are going to be very important for us, uh, even as we think about our Christian life. Um, uh, let's see, what else? Again, Numbers 15 is supplemental. So, uh, the heart of sacrificial worship is found in Leviticus, and this is supplemental. So, um, so there are issues here uh, that are not... They're expecting you to understand the sacrificial offerings from Leviticus. That's all I'm going to say. So, um, let's see. All right. Well, let's just we'll just go ahead and start um, reading the text itself. So, uh, do we have a microphone? Somebody can read for me. There's nobody back there. So, if there's a microphone, um, Benjamin. Oh, you got the mic. Way to go, Benjamin. Give that to uh, Barry Laney. Let him read verses 1 and 2 of chapter 15. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land, you are to inhabit, which I am giving you, and you offer to the Lord from... Oh. You said 1 and 2? Yeah. (laughs) Sorry, I stopped you right in the middle of a sentence, didn't I? (laughs) Okay, so um, right off the bat, verses 1 and 2, what observations do you see here? Yes, Susan. Okay, so he's speaking to them through Moses. Good, the intermediary, good. That, That connects us also with... Uh, what occurred in Moses' intercession in the in the past so chapter? So that's great. Um, good observation. Other observations from these. Yes, when you have come into the land. Now, what is he, is he just speaking to the kids? See how this is already like ah, he's speaking to people that he said you will not enter the land. And he's telling them, when you have come into the land. You have children? I just have people of Israel. Oh, so it's just Moses talking to the kids. <laughs> See, and that's, and that's the thing, right? I mean, that's, you would, who's the only one that can go in the promised land? It's surely not the, not the adults. He's already told them they can't. So, right, that's, I think that's, so when you think of Israel and you think generationally, right, the first generation is explicitly told they're not going in. Uh, the second generation is going in, but when Moses speaks, to Israel, to the people of Israel, to the children of Israel, 
I do not think that he is only speaking to the second generation. So right off the bat, we're challenged with the idea that when this second generation goes into the promised land, in some sense, all Israel will be going into the promised land. You following that? Not just that these Israelites are through their uh, children vicariously going into the promised land. Remember how in Genesis we said that it's very important where Sarah was buried, right? Because when these guys go into the promised land, Sarah's enjoying the promised land with them, covenantally. Now this can't really even make sense because Sarah is still being her grave dead. And we've always said that this is all pushing to the resurrection and the new heavens, new earth. It's all pushing to that. That the enjoyment of the promised land, any person in the promised land will enjoy it together. And I would say that when this second generation goes into the promised land, they're only doing that in a foreshadow way because they're really pointing to a day when they, we will enter the new heavens, new earth. So anyway, but Moses is speaking to them. Surely the first generation is hearing this and the first generation is doing a couple things. They're saying, oh, we still have a hope of Israel going into the promised land. Therefore, it is my duty as a parent to try to continue the covenant hope and to explain the importance of covenant loyalty. Because the reason why we didn't go into the promised land is because we didn't have faith and we rebelled against God. So what are you telling your kids? you got to have covenant faith and you got to have covenant loyalty. Right? Faith and obedience. Trust and obey. That's the point. Okay? Not just obey and you'll earn heaven. It's always back to the covenant hope. Because even for us, who are not going into the promised land, our hope is that we will, as a people, learn covenant loyalty, and that's when we will enjoy the promised land. So how would a person... 20 years or under, I kind of said this, but let's make it explicit. How would a person 20 years or under take this statement when you will enter the promised land? What, how are they going to hear this? As assurance that they're going, right? And it should spur in them faith, and it should spur in them a desire for loyalty to God. That's what should be happening in their minds. How about a person who's 20 years or older. Let's try to make explicit. What are they supposed to be thinking at this time? There is hope. That's a, we can't go in physically, but there is hope. Um, and that hope is still found in the covenant loyalty. I still belong to Israel. Now, again, all of this, there, there's got to be people in Israel that are just like, forget it all, and I hate God, and I'm just doing my own thing. They don't have hope in the promised land. But for the person who has been broken in repentance and understands their need to be different and walk with God and trust in the covenant promises, they are not without hope. The content, this is a guy guy named Cole, the content of the instruction stands in deliberate contrast to the previous context of rebellion in which the land was rejected. Um, Okay, now give it back to Barry and let him read for us verse 3, which he wanted to read anyway. 
and you offer to the Lord from the head of the from the herd or from the flock a food offering or a burnt offering or a sacrifice to fulfill a vow or as a free will offering or at your appointed feast to make a to make a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Okay, so now, who do you think is going to bring the offerings? People under 20 years old or people over 20 years old? Or both, <laughs> right? I mean, you, you can see here that this has to be addressed to the adults that are in the congregation. It cannot just be to the kids. And if you are told to bring an offering... And in bringing that offering, that will be a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Does not not communicate hope? This particular offering is called a food offering. And it's, you're supposed to offer it from the herd and from the flock. Um, <clears throat> sometimes uh, the, the Hebrew literally reads an offering of fire. Um, and so they did burn up this offering. Um, this, this offering is cooked, so to speak. It's burnt. Um, but it can be partially cooked so that there's still some food left. And so it's a food offering, particularly because both God and the worshiper partake of it. In some of the burnt offerings, all there is is it's completely consumed on the altar. But in a food offering, some of the offering is actually burnt up and, and symbolically consumed by God, and some of it is consumed by the worshiper. Hmm? It's a real feast. <laughs> God likes barbecue. There you go. But, the, but the, what is... What is going on if this is a pleasing aroma? If there's a pleasing aroma happening, that means God's happy with it, and you get to partake of it, there is fellowship with you and God. So you see how, like, do good's categories are so good, right? Because there's covenant hope. There's necessity for covenant loyalty. And there's the importance of covenant fellowship. Yes. Yes, so part of the loyalty is keeping, doing the ceremonial laws. Part of it is is actual um, obeying God's will, his command, right? Like, go into the land, go here, do this, do that, kill these people, don't kill these people. I mean, like, actual commands, that's a part of covenant loyalty, But a part of covenant loyalty is just doing the ceremonial law. God's telling people that he said, you will not go in the land. I want you to keep doing these sacrifices, and I will be pleased with them. So this is under Moses, which we sort of see as representative of the law. What about Abraham, Noah, and other such? I mean, they made sacrifices. Yeah, now the... The, the development of the, the variety of sacrifices is something that's tied to the Levitical law. Uh, I don't know. It's possible to think when, Mo, when Abraham was offering sacrifices, he takes all of the various meanings of the Levitical law and just kind of smashes them into one, or it might be that he just understands basically that there needs to be sacrifice for him to be close to God. I don't, like the... the the exegesis of Abraham's understanding of the sacrifice is 
very limited in my opinion. When we get to Moses and Leviticus, we have a very clear statement of these are what the sacrifices mean. And this is, and we would, I think as a, as a New Testament Christian, we would see all of the sacrifices in some way fulfilled in Christ, right? So, um, so it's not, uh, un, un, I don't know exactly what Abraham knew. He probably understood more than we, we know. It's clear that the Abrahamic uh, understanding of the sacrifices is foundational to the Mosaic, so that they're not like separate things. Uh, but certainly the fuller revelation of the Levitical offerings helps us to see more clearly all that is happening in the sacrifice, what's going on. These are symbolic actions designed to help us understand um, what we really need, fellowship with God, if we're going to ever have hope of eternal rest or being covenant loyal. You see how that all, it's, you know, the fellowship is so critical to this. Um, I'll put it in your terms, you know, uh, Gary has, you know, failed God, you know, he's uh, deserving of God's wrath, he, he has no real hope of eternity, right? I mean, his, his righteousness has fallen, it's failed, it's short, but does he have covenant hope? Yes, that covenant hope is in Christ, right? And, and what does he, he doesn't, he doesn't bring offerings, but we do have a regular uh, uh, expression of our faith in Christ, which would be communion, right? Where he looks, he, he comes to communion, confessing his sin, uh, dealing with it really and, and saying, Lord Jesus, I need you. And so there's real fellowship that he experiences because of what Christ has done through the Holy Spirit working in his heart. And therefore he now is striving towards covenant loyalty. Are you following all this? This is, it's, people in Israel not so much different than where we are today. <laughs> Very similar. We don't have bloody sacrifices because we got the perfect sacrifice of Christ, but we still have the same needs, right? Uh, you know, Gary's messed up his life. He's, he's had six different wives. This is not true. He's had six different wives, and the wife that he's on now is not really his wife, right? I mean, this is the man at the well. Here he is, Gary. And so her hope, his hope of actually enjoying life in this world really messed up may never get back to where it needs to be. But he's still supposed to learn faith and obedience in this life with the expectation and the hope of experiencing eternal life in Christ. Okay? The uh, Holman Standard Bible in verse 3 says, And you make a fire offering to the Lord from the herd of the flock, either a burnt offering or a sacrifice. And then it says this phrase, To fulfill a vow or as a free will offering at your appointed festivals. Now here's the thing. So a lot of times we think of Christ and we think of what he's done for us and we're not making any promises to him. We just think about his promises to us. And yet, in this particular passage, he's telling people who have rebelled that you can fulfill a vow to the Lord. That is your expression of, I want to obey God. Gary says, I have failed you, God. I have not obeyed you. I have not kept my vows. But because of Christ, because of the, the experience of grace in Christ, I, in the Holy Spirit working in me, I am pledging myself to you. I am, I am vowing to try to follow you and walk with you. Is that not what we do in our uh, covenant vows of membership? Third vow, I uh, take my vow to uh, live as becomes a follower of Christ, humbly trusting in the Holy Spirit to help me. So, so this is... This is all good news. If you're an Israelite and you're talking about making vows to the Lord and, and it's like God is wedged into the ceremonial system, this hope that I can actually offer something to God. My previous failure has not somehow cut me off from ever being able to offer myself to God. And I think in the Christian life, it's very important that we do that. 
If all you think is that Christ gives to you and you can't do anything, you can't ever offer back obedience to God, you're missing out. Because a part of who you are as a person is wanting to say, oh, I love you, God, I'm giving myself to you. And that's here in the sacrificial system. It could be done as to fulfill a vow. It could be done as a free will offering. A free will offering is not one that was required. You just wanted to do it out as an act of thankfulness and love. Okay? <clears throat> Um, let's read verses 4 to 12 because it gets a little bit more into the nitty-gritty of details and we're like, mm, what's going on here? So, uh, Lee, would you like to read for us? Here comes the uh, microphone for you. Then he who brings his offering shall offer to the Lord a grain offering of a tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a quarter of a hen of oil. And you shall offer with the burnt offering or for the sacrifice a quarter of a hen of wine for the drink offering for each lamb. Or for a ram you shall offer for a grain offering two-tenths of an ephah of fine oil flour mixed with a third of a hen of oil. And for the drink offering you shall offer a third of a hen of wine, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And when you offer a bull as a burnt offering or sacrifice to fulfill a vow, or for peace offerings to the Lord, then one shall offer with the bull a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah of fine flour, mixed with half a hen of oil. And you shall offer for the drink offering half a hen of wine as a food offering, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. Okay. Now, again, this is, these are verses that you just go... What are we talking about? Besides the fact not understanding biblical weights and measurements, I actually have a little um, a little uh, chart here that I, I just found off the internet um, that I think is pretty helpful, but some of your Bibles probably has the same thing. What's an ephah? What's a seah? What's an omer? You know, all that kind of stuff. So um, if you're interested in that and your Bible doesn't already have it, you can come up and look at that later. Um, but there are three things going on here. There's... there's uh, like three types of animals in this, right? What are the different types of animals? Lamb, rams, bulls. And what you're seeing there is that uh, this is just like a young lamb. This is the rams, full-grown adult male rams. And then bulls. And so what you're getting is, is uh, increasing in size. As you go down this list, you're actually getting larger and larger uh, in the size of your animal, right? And uh, what, what, along with these meat sacrifices, there was also uh, accompanying them, and you would know this from Leviticus, there was actually um, uh, like... I'll call it food, although this is food. The uh, produce is maybe the best way to put it. There was produce issues that had to go along with it. Grain offerings, right? Now remember, this is a command that you need to do this when you're in the land. Why would it not be something that you need to do when you're in the desert? You wouldn't have any grain offerings. You wouldn't have this stuff. You wouldn't be growing this stuff. So again, you can see how this even fuels the hope of the people who are still in the wilderness. Um, okay, so what is the purpose of this chapter? Cutting through all the little details, like what, what's God really trying to communicate to them in this, in the amounts of each one? Yeah, so number one, there's going to be provision. You are going to be in the land, and you are going to be enjoying its produce, and you are going to have stuff to be able to do this. That's number one. This is very, very simple. doesn't seem like a really even spiritual principle, but the bigger the sacrifice, the more side dishes you've got to have. You know, how many people are you coming over tonight? 
okay, do I need to have two vegetables or just one? Right? I mean, this is the, if you've got a big bull sacrifice, you're going to have to have an accompanying grain sacrifice that's going to meet that. They're going to be in proportion to one another. I mean, that's, that's really the simple, it's not real flashy, but that's, that's what this is all about. The ratio is the same. Uh, I mean, they're not specifically the same ratios. One is a quarter, one is a third, one is a half, all that kind of stuff going on. But, but the fact is, the bigger the offering, the bigger this accompanying with it needs to be. Oh, I see. Yeah, it's good questions. Wow, that's great. Uh, I, I think it could be just um, in proportion to some some sacrifices in Leviticus. You had to use a ram, or you had to use a bull. Some did, but but some of them went so far as to say that that even with like doves or pigeons. You know, if you're poor enough, uh, you, you could just have um, that size. So I think it has a lot to do with the fact that some people are going to be wealthier than others in the land. Some people will enjoy uh, greater amounts. Um, and I think from their, from what they can produce, they would have a tribute to that, not just the, the bull itself. So, but Mary, that's a good question. I have not thought through that um, could it be because of greater thankfulness? Could it be because of uh, greater sin? Um, it, it, I don't think the greater sin is the one because there was a specific offering that you gave as a sin offering, and they were very explicit on what you needed to give for that offering. This is more has to do maybe with the amount of thankfulness and devotion because it is, is a, it's a vow or it's a free will offering, those kind of things that are being accompanied it could just be you have a larger family and you're using a, a larger meal for this. So uh, go ahead, Nathan. I was just thinking about the 10%. Like if you have, like that had already been established. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, if you have a greater percentage of things, then your 10% is going to be a greater amount of sacrifice. That's good. Yeah. Proportional. Yeah. I, you know, this, these are the kind of questions, though, I would – Love it if if you guys kept thinking about it and came back to me next week and said, "Oh, this is maybe, what about this?" You know, because these are reflections that the text doesn't interpret all this for you. Um, it's it's there for you to reflect upon, and I think that's what God wanted people to do. You know, this oh, on your law I meditate day and night. It's not just the moral principles. Part of meditation is meditation on these sacrifices and what is God doing in them and what's his purpose in them uh, are worth our meditation. It'd be like us saying, let me think about Christ. Let me just pause and meditate on Christ and who he is and what he's done. And that's a, that's a part of this. We should be thinking about that. So I don't think I have explored this to its depths. I've read a few commentaries on it, um, and I'm not sure that they've explored it to its depths either, but it's it's there for us to think about. So... Okay, let's keep going. 13 to 16. Um, Mr. John Coleman, would you read that for us, please? 13 through 16, excuse me, not 15. Um, How far did I take you? I thought I took you through 12. Oh, well then, uh, Coleman, you'll start in verse 11 and read all the way to 16.
Okay, thank you. Um, okay, again, this kind of comes back to you're not even in the promised land yet. You're wandering in the wilderness, and he's giving you details about when you get into the land. And I would be thinking, all right, don't even talk with me about that yet. Uh, Danny Beck knows clearly that he, I, I'm a visionary, but I am not a planner. So he'll like say, oh, what are we going to do in next July? And I'm like, next July? Don't tell me about next July. I just got to deal with today, <laughs> which, by the way, helps me with being less anxious, but it doesn't help me with being a planner, right? <laughs> and so uh, there's benefits to both, and we work well together in that way. But, uh, but here God is telling a generation who's in the wilderness, this is how you're going to have to do things after you're in the land, after you own the land, and there's sojourners with you in the land. It's pretty amazing that God says these kind of things. He's definitely wanting them to think forward. Um, that's right. That's right. <laughs> yes. Um, so a sojourner is someone who's just not a permanent Israelite in this situation. We, sometimes we say that we are sojourners on earth because this earth is not our home. We live here. We're here our whole lives, but we're sojourners here. That'd be the same thing in this context. It's someone who is not a full Israelite, but is living in the land. Okay? So that's who the sojourners are. Uh, how, are the, how are these sacrificial rules uh, supposed to affect the sojourner? They're included, aren't they? Isn't that interesting? I, you know, uh, and there's not two sets of rules. That's good. So, so Lee just said that the, the grafting in of the Gentiles, that, they, um, that they're full participants. I, I don't know. I think there's a hint of that, Lee. I think that, that because there's a sense that they too, the sojourner has the opportunity to enter into this fellowship this faith, this, this covenant expression. Um, <clears throat> no favoritism, right? And you think about how often the Israelites look down on people who were not. I mean, like, they do exactly the opposite of what they're supposed to be doing. I, I mean, at a minimum, you should be, as an Israelite, saying, we want other people to come in and partake of the grace that we've been given. And yet they're not, they don't do that very well. <laughs> I shouldn't say they should, none of them have done that, but. Um. <clears throat> Any other comments on this portion here? All right, oh, give, give the microphone to your mom. How does that line up with the scripture that says the Moabites and the Ammonites to the, I don't know, how many generations later will not come into the temple worship? <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, anybody else want to answer that question? <laughs> uh <clears throat> I guess you could even say, how does it, how does it uh, line up with Joshua going into the land and murdering? I mean, not murdering, uh, executing uh, God's justice over all the people in the land, right? So um, there does, again, I think this this sort of uh, contrast. There's this there's this covenant hope. That really is for all, all who will trust in him. But there, there are times in scripture where, where God judges. Like he actually executes a judgment and he sovereignly does that. So when he uh, kicks someone out, I mean, he's really kicking someone out, right? I mean, it's a, and, but he's doing that based upon, uh, what I would say, no faith and 
uh, stubborn refusal to submit. Um, so I think that God has the right to do that. And I do think even in our own um, church discipline, when we excommunicate someone, we're, we're casting them out. It's a real casting out. Uh, and then uh, when God does it, he can absolutely take someone out, like Achan or like uh, Korah in rebellion. We're going to see Korah's rebellion. He just takes them out, and they're done. Right, so this is, this is election. Why, why, the, the question is always, why does he not do that with everyone? You know I mean? Because it, we all could be like this. And so it's in the elect that he chooses to bestow mercy. But there are enough places in Scripture where we actually see the destruction of the wicked that we know election is on mercy alone, not something that you have earned. Uh, so... Uh, how does it play out? I would have to get into those passages on the Moabites because that that one's like to the tenth generation. I mean, that's you know, it's hard to could there, were there any Moabites redeemed personally during that ten generations or not? I, I don't know. There's not. I certainly see in Ruth a Moabite being redeemed, but um, how far down was that? It might all be. I, those are tough questions. I don't. I don't know exactly. Does anybody else want to add to that? I don't. I do think it's a conflation of these two things, that you have the covenant hope, which is calling people to repentance, and you have the times where God judges people. But uh, any other adding to that? Yeah, oh yeah. You, you, yeah. <laughs> um. That's right, yeah. That's right. Yeah, uh, I hope at some point in your life you feared whether you would be of the non-elect. <laughs> you know, had some sort of, no, no, I don't want to be that. <laughs> Please save me, forgive me, be merciful to me, that kind of attitude. But um. <laughs> I so, so Lee is doing the right thing. So really, um, your question maybe is answered by even the text itself because you're going to see in someone who is an Israelite actually define God and God says, take him out. So, um, okay, so let's, let's uh, thank you, Carrie. I, I, I appreciate questions like that that are not, there's just not an easy, quick answer to something like that. I really appreciate that. So um, uh, let's give this to, uh, oh, Andrea, would you read for us 17 through 21? The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you enter the land to which I am taking you, and you eat the food of the land, present a portion as an offering to the Lord. Present a loaf from the first of your ground meal, and present it as an offering from the threshing floor. Throughout the generations to come, you are to give this offering to the Lord from the first of your ground meal. Okay. I don't know if all your translations have contribution. You have that in your text, contribution. So I want to try to make sense of that word, contribution. Because this is your contribution, right? You shall present a contribution to the Lord. It, it is your contribution. Um King James has a heave offering. Um, and so what's the occasion for this, this sort of offering? Not just when you come into the land, but when you eat the bread of the land. You're enjoying 
and, and I would call the bread of the land a symbolic, it's a symbolic uh, statement that you are enjoying the blessings of the covenant, right? That's, that's, you're not just eating bread and you're thankful that your stomach's full. You're, you're seeing in this provision of bread God's faithfulness to fulfill his covenant to you. Uh, and so they are giving thanks recognizing God's faithfulness to his covenant promises. He is to give some of the first of his dough, and I would see this as the first in time, not necessarily the best. Although, maybe you can have some implied, don't give God your leftovers, right, uh, in this. But it's, it's that God has provided. The first thing you want to say is thank you for providing with the expectation of more to come. Right? You're giving out of the first fruits. Um, first fruits. Jesus equals firstborn. Or first fruits. How do you connect this? The, the, the Old Testament Israelite, as he's experiencing some of the first fruits, is to give this contribution offering as a first fruit. How does that connect to Christ? Can you make those jumps? That's right. He's the firstborn to raise from the dead with the promise that all of us will be raised with him, in him, those sorts of things. And so if you experience any of the blessings of the covenant here and now, right, you, you have some, um, some taste. What is uh, Philippians 2 says, um, if you have any encouragement, any hope, any, any uh, fellowship with God now, do what? Make my joy complete by being like-minded, right? Offer yourself to God in the way that Christ offered himself to God, right? Consider others of better importance than you, those kind of things. So, so because Jesus has blessed me, given me the first fruits of my salvation, which may be the new birth, the Holy Spirit dwelling in you, some fellowship with God, because of those things, offer yourself to him, Right? There's that idea that you are giving spiritual offerings to God. It's your contribution to him. The bottom line is that this contribution is a way of expressing humble thanks to our God. What's that? <laughs> oh, I, and I think that is there's a great illustration of death because the way that we are supposed to live in this world, and I repeat myself, I'm speaking this to myself, is I am to die. The way to life is through death. And, and so when you give up what, what the blessing that you could be enjoying, that is a means of self-denial, which is a means of death to self. So, <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Wait a minute, hold on, Get take that out. If he's going to keep talking, we're gonna, this is too, no, no, this is too good. You're saying good things. <laughs> Go ahead, make him repeat that again. <laughs> the, just the part of your prayer. You get done with your prayer, good. Yeah, I got done with the prayer, and, and immediately a thought went into my head that wasn't a good thought, and I thought, I hate my old self. 
I just want it to die. I want to be done with it. So I, because the prayer I had was wonderful. And then mm-hmm. as soon as I'm done, like, there it is. <laughs> a split second later, yeah. boom. And, you know, it's just a constant battle and fight. And I just can't wait until that old self is dead. Okay, so, okay, so he's acknowledging that he still has sin. But is he also acknowledging that he is hating that sin and turning from that sin and wanting God to destroy that sin? That's, a, that's the attitude. Now, that's going to be far different than what we see in the next section, which is what we call the high-handed sin. Okay? So um, let's give this to Megan uh, back there next to Ryan. And if you, Megan, would read 22 to 26. But if you sin unintentionally and do not observe all these commandments that the Lord has spoken to Moses, all that the Lord has commanded you by Moses from the day that the Lord gave commandment and onward throughout your generations, then if it was done unintentionally without the knowledge of the congregation, all the congregation shall offer one bull from the herd for a burnt offering a pleasing aroma to the Lord with its grain offering and its drink offering, according to the rule, and one male goat for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for all the congregation of the people of Israel, and they shall be forgiven, because it was a mistake. And they have brought their offering, a food offering, to the Lord, and their sin offering before the Lord for their mistake. And all the congregation of the people of Israel shall be forgiven, and the stranger who sojourns among them, because the whole population was involved in the mistake. All right, so there's a lot of little details here. Um, uh, again, Leviticus 4 and 5 deal with unintentional sins and the purification offering. Um, it seems to be in this scenario that the priest himself makes a mistake without the knowledge of the congregation. Um, the priest knows that there are many details in his law. It seems to be that the priest has missed some detail and later recognizes his mistake. The congregation is connected to the priest, and so atonement must be made for the entire congregation. Even the sojourner is involved in the mistake. Number one, I would say, well, isn't it great that we have a high priest who makes no mistakes, right? I mean, that's the first thing you would be happy that we have. But but it is also nice that, that there's acknowledgement that we do even... Uh, the priest did got it wrong sometimes, right? Uh, and that there's provision for that. Isn't that wonderful that our God is okay with you not getting everything right? Is there not a difference between, you know, you're talking to your child and you say, hey, would you pick up that trash and take it outside? And they look at you and say, no. Uh, or or the, you, know, you give them the list of all the duties that they're supposed to do today and they leave one of them undone because they've forgotten in the midst of the day is a big difference between the two of those. There's still failures, but there's a difference in those, and I think that's being made here. Um, let's keep going before we try to make all the finals of these. So 17 to, or, uh, 27 to 28. Uh, uh, let's see. Where's our microphone? Give that to your dad. If one person sins unintentionally, he shall offer a female goat a year old for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement before the Lord for the person who makes the mistake when he sins unintentionally to make atonement for him and he shall be forgiven. Okay, so if the previous verses are more corporate failure, this is much more individual failure. Is that right? You see the difference between those. Um, Again, the same, it doesn't go into what is an unintentional sin. I, I mean, we could make arguments that every sin is on some level intentional, right? I mean, we, uh, officer, I didn't see the, um, the um, speed limit sign that I just passed. Does that work for you, little Clark? Does that work for you? Uh, I didn't see the speed limit sign, so therefore I'm innocent. Yeah, right. <laughs> So there is no real, like, completely unintentional sin because you're, you're, intend, you're, you're always volitionally doing something in the sin. Um, but it does seem that this is one where you're not truly saying, I just want to rise up and rebel against God and just hate him. Um, 
the offering for an individual is much more simple than just the, the what we've just read in the entire congregation. Um, uh, 29 through 31, Mike, just keep reading for us. You shall have one law for him who does anything intentionally, for him who is native among the people of Israel, and for the stranger who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything with a high hand, whether he is a native or a sojourner, reviles the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from among his people. Because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment, that person shall be utterly cut off. His iniquity shall be on him. Okay, so there's one law for the native and the sojourner. Um, there's you know, different differences between a corporate sin, a global bigger sin, the whole body, and one that's just an individual, but they're there. Then he starts dealing with this high-handed sin. And what does he tell us about the high-handed sin? Reviles the Lord. So there's this attitude in that you basically say, God, I just, I hate you, I revile you, I don't, I don't consider you worthy of my worship, that sort of attitude. He's also despising the word of the Lord. Right, the actual command of God. He's in, in, so despising the word of the Lord, breaking the commandment of God, those kind of things. It's a clear, it's unrepentant, and it's defiant. What is to be done to this sort of man? Cut off. Again, remember we were talking about you have covenant hope, covenant loyalty, covenant fellowship. He is being cut off from covenant fellowship. That makes sense? Uh, and remember, covenant fellowship is the means by which we grow towards covenant loyalty. And so to cut yourself off from that, or to be cut off from that, is terrible. His iniquity shall remain on him. Right? The guilt of his sin remains. It's not, it's not gone. Uh, presumably, if the attitude of the person were to change then the sentence would change. Same thing we do with church discipline, right? It would, it would change. Um, commentator, defiant sin is the spiritual equivalent of jumping off the Golden Gate Bridge. If biblical warnings sound harsh, they are to prevent that from happening. A story goes that a man climbed onto the railing along the edge of the Golden Gate Bridge about to end his life. A police officer dispatched to the scene attempted to dissuade him from taking the plunge. After hours of unsuccessfully attempting to convince the man that he had all kinds of positive reasons to keep on living, the policeman became frustrated. Pulling out his pistol, he pointed it at the man's head and threatened to blow his brains out if he didn't get down from the railing. The man got down. <laughs> I thought that was a great illustration. So next, next week, we will look at the example of the man picking up sticks, which I think is a completely misunderstood. It's often used to show God's harshness, when in reality, it is an example of a man doing the very high-handed sin that we're talking about right now. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for the book of Numbers. Thank you that it does help us to understand our lives. Lord, bottom line, we are sinners. But we do not want to be the ones who have high-handed sin. Lord, sometimes when I have sinned against you, I have felt like that has been me. But Lord, I, I cast myself upon you and beg your mercy and trust in your covenant faithfulness and in the blood of Christ. And I plead that you, by your Spirit, would continue to work in our hearts, that we would walk with you, and that we would not do anything uh, willingly opposed to you, Lord. Um, we just give you praise. In Jesus' name, amen.